listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full-time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best-selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Top Music Guitar Podcast. With me today, I've got a very, very special guest, an author, a businessman, someone with a wealth of knowledge on guitar business and guitar teaching, and that is David Hart of the G4 Guitar Method. David, welcome to the Top Music Guitar Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. It's definitely great to have you. And um, I know I get lots of uh, people inquiring about G4 Method in the online realm, so what better... Um, person to have us talk about G4 guitar and some guitar teaching than the uh, author and founder of the series himself. So can you give the listeners a brief overview of your story so far, your transition from regular teaching to, you know, writing your own curriculum and taking G4 guitar to a worldwide brand? Yeah. Uh, okay. So the short story would be that I began teaching as a teenager and I started at actually when I was still at high school. I was given the job by my school teacher to take over the guitar class, which was a lunchtime guitar class. There was obviously no money involved, but it was just teaching younger kids. And then from there, I worked out that people would pay me to do it. And so I began my business first, sort of taking on my first few students and building sort of building a few numbers. And and but I also worked in retail. My my mother had shops uh, in retail, and so I learned to work in sales and, and understand the runnings of a business. And my, I grew up with all that. So my family, not just my mother, but many members of my family are entrepreneurs and business people. So, so I was lucky enough to learn a lot of that just through being uh, born into the right family. Then from there, I, I went on and worked for a few other companies. One was a music company. In, in Australia that, that originated where you are in Melbourne, um, they were called Brashes. Then I learned a lot from there. I, they taught me sales, more, sort of more advanced sales courses and techniques and customer service. And um, then they decided to make me a manager, which meant a little bit more money, but a lot more work. And I soon worked out, well, if I'm going to do all this work for them, why not do it for myself, build my own business? And that's what happened. So I took the thing that but basically, I combined my two interests and, and loves, if you like, which was music combined with business. And so, and plus, I love teaching. Teaching was something that I think I, I was just naturally uh, geared for because I like the sound of my own voice. And so, when I was put in a position where I could tell people what I knew and they would be willing to listen, uh, then it, it was it was the perfect sort of marriage of the three things: teaching business and, and music. So, yeah, so from there, I just went on and built uh, the first business, made many, many mistakes, uh, failed miserably and, uh, and, and learned. And, and it, was, it was an ongoing process. I, I, w- I wouldn't even say that there was sort of definite points. It was just an evolution of, of making mistakes, learning, getting frustrated, finding myself in sort of these positions of wanting to quit I think it's similar to guitar. You know, anyone who plays a guitar can relate to the, that very fact is that when you take up guitar, you, you go through these moments where you think, it's, I'm, just, I'm just not getting anywhere. I'm, not, I'm never going to be any good at this. So what am I doing wasting my time? And so you want to quit, but there's something that's driving you not to quit. You're like, no, I can't. I've got, to, I've got to go back in and try again. And that's really, I would say, the evolution of what I did in business as an overview. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you bring that you know point you know forward that you, you failed a couple of times, but you kept at it, and you obviously you know went on to bigger and better things. And that drawing that parallel with you know wanting to play guitar or, or going to the gym or any other venture which most people enter into, it's always the same process. You're going to basically get excited about something, get into it, 
and get some initial success, right, up until you hit a roadblock. But it really, it, what you do once you hit that roadblock and whether you give up at that point or you find a way around the obstacle is, you know, what shapes what comes next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant back and forth, I would say, where, yeah, you, you go through those moments of feeling inspired, like, you know, you're un- unstoppable and you finally cracked it, you know, you know how, it's, how to do it. And then, say, you hit a roadblock or, you know, a setback and sometimes those setbacks can be small sometimes they can be major and and it's all you know I did a lot of I think probably one of the keys to to what got me through I don't like using the term so much of my key to success because I think that we're all always succeeding and failing succeeding and failing there's there's no sort of point where you say okay I'm a success now I can get I can just retire from life so it's it's always this constant uh, you know two steps forward, one step back sort of thing. And I think what the, if I was to sort of have one piece of advice, it would be to read. And then I've just read, I just read. And that's whenever I feel bogged or down or, or, you know, feeling disheartened about something, I just start reading. And and actually, I don't stop reading. I constantly read, but I will focus my reading on a particular topic. So, for example, if I'm not getting students, just if we just use this example, I'll just go hard on marketing. I'll just say, well, where are, how can I find students? What can I do? What, how can I get more, more customers, more clients? What are all those things? And then I'll, I'll get that. And suddenly it, it's almost like a, a magic out of nowhere. You, you're inundated with inquiries, new, new prospects, leads, people who are interested. Say, if you're a guitar teacher, suddenly you've got all these people wanting to learn guitar with you. But then you're talking to them on the phone and none of them are actually signing up or very few of them are signing up. Um, so then you move to sales. Okay, how do I convert them from an inquiry to an act customer? And then you find, okay, I've done that. I'm converting them, but they're not lasting. They're only staying a month or two and then they're, they're disappearing. All right, so now I have to learn how to build relationships, um, build long-term relationships. So it's this ongoing, almost like a whack-a-mole game where you you're constantly having to go back to different places and fix it yeah yeah and the whack-a-mole anyone who's watching the video rather than listening at home can see me grinning ear to ear because that's just such a great analogy for you know life in business and you know you get one thing under order and the next one pops up and it's just you know spinning plates and and things like that but a a tremendous analogy um i want to dig a little bit deeper in the fact that you said you failed so obviously you know we can look at g4 and see that there's teachers all around the world teaching it. Are you talking about a failure in your personal business or something with the G4 brand itself? And I don't even think we got to the story behind uh, G4 at this point either. Okay. Well, maybe if I just give a little bit of the story and then, yeah, I can sort of go off into that. The The, the story of G4, like I said, was an evolution, but there are obviously some clear pivots, um, as they say in business. And so, and you can look at this at many businesses. Many businesses pivot. They start in one place doing one particular thing and then they pivot into something else. And they're often a very different business to what they started in. You know, if you take someone like Elon Musk, who's Tesla cars, um, he started, he was, he was programming. He was a programmer. And so I think he was originally, I can't remember because it might be confusing with someone else, but I think he was originally involved in doing like security stuff. He was trying to, help with building security programs and, and whatever. And, and then he got into PayPal, which he was one of the creators of PayPal. So he created a, a system of payment online. And somehow he's ended up building cars, digging tunnels, uh, building rockets to go to Mars. You know, so, he, so you can see he's pivoted uh, several times to get to, to where he is. So if I look at in, in my case, I started out as a guitar teacher, as a solo one-on-one guitar teacher. That was my business. That's what I did. And I pivoted from that into a music school. So bringing in other teachers to expand, to, to sort of leverage so that I wasn't just the one person doing all the teaching. And then that, you know, I learned many lessons from that, but I also learned that there wasn't any money in it, in the structure that it was. And I found this problem across the board. It wasn't just me. As I spoke to entrepreneur music school owners, you can see them all around. And they're not they're not so common now because a lot of them disappeared, which makes sense. But what happened, especially during the 80s and 90s, is you had all these guys who had these schools, like music schools, where they'd teach, you know, five or ten different instruments in the school. They'd bring in teachers. 
but they didn't make any money because there was this problem of that you had to pay the teacher a decent amount and you couldn't charge too much. So the, the actual profit margin was quite small. And so if you had, as I did, like 500 students in your school and you were only making you know, a dollar or two off each lesson uh, each week, that would come to you know $1,000 or, or if you're lucky, maybe a little bit more, $1,500. But then you had to pay your rent, you had to pay your marketing, you had to pay for the, you know, any... The cleaning and, and all the rest of it, the you know, the, the, and then the bank takes their bit, um, you know, any credit cards, all that. So what you end up finding is that you're working eighty hours a week and earning less than a wage. And so it's like, well, this is not working. <laughs> this is a bad business model. So I think anyone who's been an entrepreneur in that position can understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm sure there's a few listeners like cringing right here right now, getting the sympathy pains for you. They know exactly what it's like. Getting caught yeah. between the you know the ceiling of um, yeah how much can you get away with charging versus how much you got to before they say no essentially and you know your teachers are, exactly what you said essentially you need good teachers you got to pay them well and um, to to justify that you got to raise your prices and then you start eliminating potential clientele. Yep, yep, and the te- the teachers naturally have a different mindset, right? They're seeing things from a different point of view. So if you're in some there are some entrepreneurs who were able to make money but they had to have a, a larger profit margin. And so the teachers who who work for them would feel a little bit ripped off. It's like you're 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 charging like you know sixty to seventy dollars an hour and you're paying me twenty. Like come on. That's how fair is that? It's very unfair. So they want to be paid, you know, much closer to what you're charging. So as you put your rates up, it's harder to get students. You've got to spend more on marketing, etc. But then you've got this problem of the teacher wanting more money for what, for what they're doing. And because there's also a, a big problem in it is that if a teacher leaves, then there's a lot of fallout because that, because it was private teaching, you have a lot of relationship building between teacher and student. So a teacher drops out, half the students leave with them, or you get, you get students getting poached. In other words, the teacher starts taking them home, redirecting them to their house, and then the teacher suddenly leaves. And then you realise that, that what they've been doing is getting the students from you so they can teach them at home. So there's all this, you know, break of trust and, and so forth. So there's a lot of a lot of problems for the, the music school entrepreneur. So so I realized that and I thought, okay, this is difficult. This is a problem. What what am I going to do about it? So I started teaching groups. That was that was the sort of the next stage. And I did it myself where I was teaching groups of just adults because I thought, well, because I was all I was in that private camp, which is a big part of what we have in the guitar world, at least, is the guitar teaching world, is that we believe that, you know, we should be teaching one-on-one, that to learn guitar, you have, it's just you and the teacher in a room and and it's all about what I want to learn and, and, you know, private coaching. So concept of group teaching to many guitar teachers is either foreign or they're just against it. They're just like, you just, all you're doing is you're just in it for money. It's, it's kind of like this mindset of you're just in it for money. You just, you'll take as many students as you can because they're going to be different levels. How can you teach five or 10 students at one time? So as what happened in that case, as I started to teach the adults beginner classes, I began to realize that you can teach different students. And it was just a skill that that it didn't matter even if you had, because even when you teach a beginner class, rarely are they all at the same level. They, they've usually got some skills. Rarely, even when I taught beginners, did they turn up with absolutely zero knowledge of how to play a guitar especially these days because they can learn a lot online before they come to you. So to cut a long story short, I started teaching the adult groups. I learned a lot about group teaching. As I said before, I became very focused on how to teach groups. I was reading a lot about it. I was studying it. And and so then I found that I my confidence built to teach these groups. And so then what happened with my school is I started to see all the problems with it and how here I was teaching about five adult groups with eight to 10 students in each group. And that's where I was making my money. The rest of it was just paying for itself. In other words, the money that was coming in for the, all the private students was just enough to really pay the bills and pay for the teachers. It wasn't a profitable exercise. So it was the 80-20, which I apply a lot and I talk about a lot. So the 80-20 is that that you, you, I'm sure you know the principle, but basically, basically it's yeah, 20% of your students provide you 80% of your profit. Uh, and that's Pareto's principle for our listeners who haven't, um, who aren't familiar with the 80-20 rule of the 80-20 principle or Pareto's principle. And 
definitely a book worth reading and something you'll see in every part of everyday life. And you can even continue expanding on that there, David. Okay, great. So, so exactly, Pareto's principle. And so, so what would happen was, was I started to, to really, and that was about the time that I was right into that as well. I started to look at it, every aspect of the business and, and how the 80-20 applied. And so I saw this, okay, here I am making my money out of, you know, 50 students in groups teaching for, you know, five hours a week. And all this other work that I'm doing, all this, you know, 75, 80 hours of work over here, I'm making almost nothing. So this is crazy. Like, what am I doing? So I, I, I sold the business, got out of it. And I, t- I took a couple of years off because I really wanted to plan G4 out properly. I wanted to learn all the things I've spent. At that point, I'd been in business almost probably about 15, 16 years. And so, because I'd started as a teenager. So I'd, I'd sort of seen this evolution of, that, of where I'd gone this long and I hadn't really made it any, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd earned an income, I'd made a wage, I had a few good years, but generally I wasn't making much money. I, I may as well just stayed in a job. I would, have done, I would have done a lot better just staying in a sales job because I used to get paid commission as well. So, And that was probably my best earnings was when, like at that time, in those 15, 16 years, was when I was working in retail getting paid commission. So, And I, I'd really honed those sales skills, so I, I, I knew how to do it. And that's why I had no problem signing in new students. That was, I realized that was my strength. If you talk about your 80-20, again, we, we have that 80% of our results come from 20% of our efforts. So in my case, the 20% of effort was sales. I was able to sign in students, no problem. And so that's why I ended up with a school with all these students because I could sign them in easily. And, but I wasn't, the business model wasn't profitable. So, then, so what I did is I took the two years off and I planned it all out. And initially what I planned for was just to teach myself and to teach in groups and and my goal, my target at that point was to earn about four thousand dollars a week, uh, working twenty hours a week. So so I mapped out how many students do I need, how am I going to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And and I and so what happened is that and this is a, a you know a big lesson is that when you're very clear about what you want and you you plan it, you you just focus on it, and you plan it, and you move, remove all the distractions. It happens much faster than you you realize. And so I went from zero, literally zero. G4 was nothing. Nobody ever heard of it. It was just a new and a new concept and in a whole new area. So nobody knew me. I did, it's not like I went and rang up old students and brought them in. This was an area nobody knew me. I'd basically gone from the very south part of Sydney to the northern suburbs. Um, so they're completely different areas. And within eight months, I was I hit my target of earning $4,000 a week. And even I couldn't believe it. I was like, this happened way too quickly. Like it, I must have got lucky, and perhaps I didn't get a bit lucky, but it, it it happened. Like I said, much faster. I expected it to take a few years, and in fact, it was a five year plan. So I had the the expectation that it would that it would take a couple of years, but I was happy. I was I was fine if it was going to take five years, and yet it took eight months. Yeah. So that's how I got to that point. Yeah. And that's an awesome milestone. Just curious, did you start with like the bigger figure of two hundred thousand as your your target, and then break that down? into a monthly target or did you start just aim for the monthly thing there? Yeah, I, what I was looking for was was a reliable monthly income. Um, I wanted to get away from, from the annual income idea because one of the traps that happens in this many music schools and even guitar teachers fall into is, is that they end up earning a lot of money in the school terms and then holidays hit and they're cashless. They've just got no money coming in. Um, and so there's these these sort of big gaps and dips. But what we do as human nature is we don't have very we're not very good at long term projections. That's why people fail to. That's why people you know find themselves at thirty or forty years of age and still broke, is because they're just not very good at planning for for a long term. I think it was Robbins who said that you know we're great at you know planning for for a year, but but we're terrible over a ten year period. So I, I I knew that if I could just focus on the monthly amount and keep it consistent, that's that's what I was aiming for. So yeah, so I was focused on four thousand dollars a month, or and and it was a round number as well, so thousand dollars a week. Fantastic. Oh, sorry, no, no, no. Sorry, four thousand dollars a week. It was four thousand a week. Yep. Yeah, four thousand dollars a week. So yeah, so, something that I've anyone who's done the top music course has definitely heard me say that, guys, you've got to be planning things. You need to know what your target is. You need to have a goal in mind. 
And you need to just do the numbers and break it down to whatever that target is. And even like some of you might be going $4,000 a week. That's crazy. Uh, but I'm sure you did this as well, David. It's just, you, you knew exactly how many students you needed to get that. And you had your weekly targets, or at least you seemed like 100 students in total was, you know, a huge milestone and you know, completely out of reach. You just break it down, you know, divide that by 12 and you've got to get something like, you know, eight students a month throughout the year, break that down into weeks. You only need to sign up two new students a week. And by the end of the year or by the end of your 12 month period, you'll end up arriving at your target. So often these big, scary numbers can be broken down into really easy milestones to, uh, you know, work towards and achieve. Yep, exactly. It was just a matter of, yeah, breaking things down, reverse engineering it, starting with what you want and then bringing it back to to specific numbers. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that milestone and um, a big advocate of music teachers making more money and charging what they're worth and just doing things a smarter way. And everything you said about private lessons versus group lessons, you know, I pretty much agree with the fact that you know, music's been taught the same way for the last 1,000, 2,000 years and not much has evolved. But, um, you know, people they learn in school in groups groups of 30 kids and that's just fine you go to university and 23 and a half of your 24 contact hours are in group-based learning so why are we still stuck and fixated in private lessons and there's so many benefits in a group lesson that you don't get in a private lesson and things you miss out on so yeah big advocate of group teaching as well yeah yeah and and that's exactly what you're saying and that it's amazing how all these things sort of you, you realize that and and with the group teaching it's like we learn in groups all the time. We're actually much more used to group learning than we are private learning. That we, we, we grew up. It's just that we have this, this sort of tradition of learning one-on-one with a musical instrument. And, and I sort of thought about, well, where did that start from? Well, it probably started from piano because you can't, people, most people didn't, couldn't afford a piano. Piano was just for the rich, uh, you know, really up until recent times, the only people who owned pianos were the wealthy. And so a wealthy person doesn't need to, to be in a group and, and it's to have 10 pianos in a room would be very difficult as well. Like, you know, if you think traditionally, so that's where I, th- and, and when you look at the, the instrument, like even having private less, sorry, even having tuition uh, of any kind outside of a free public school system was a privilege. It was again for the wealthy. Um, and so it wasn't something that you could do groups because there just wasn't enough people to bring together and to do the group learning with a musical instrument. But if you think about most other learning, you know, we go to school, we go to university, you know, th- there's so many situations where we, we learn in groups and we spend most of our life learning in groups that it just, it's, it's not unfamiliar. It's not something that we should think of as, you know, the wrong thing to do it's it's like it's 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 the normal way it's not the abnormal way um learning one-on-one is actually the 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 unusual way most people learn in groups 100 percent. i agree with everything you've said and um it is a completely different skill which most people aren't used to because you know, uh, probably similar story to yourself i just when i was 16 started teaching friends and family members just riffs and licks here and there and it was always in a one-on-one kind of scenario they'd come over on you know jump on my guitar i'll show you a few things so even before you formally begin teaching people you generally start teaching people in a one-on-one scenario and then it, it just grows from there you you, you get a job at a local music shop or a retail store teaching and you, you get a really tiny little room because that's the spare space because music's generally lessons are the, you know, the second business stream as opposed to the retail being the main focus. So you get the broom cupboard where you can only fit one extra person and then just you know, <laughs> expands from there. You're just stuck in this yeah. whole um, society-wide uh, stereotype or, or belief that it's a one-on-one is the way to go for lessons. But I'm no, definitely glad to hear it's... Um, they're not the case, and I guess group lessons and group teaching is becoming more and more popular. Yeah, and and I think if we sort of dig down on this topic a bit, two things that I I want to point out is one, I found that the main reason guitar teachers weren't teaching in groups was fear. They were just afraid of it. They were just like, well, I don't know how to teach in a group. I know how to teach privately, but I don't know how to teach in a group. I'm intimidated by a group of people at one time. So that fear, and that's real fear. I, I felt the same fear when I started teaching groups. Suddenly, I'm in front of an audience. Whereas before, when you're one-on-one, it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like you're sitting with a friend or someone, you know, like it's very comfortable compared to sitting in front of 10 strangers and then you have to start teaching them all at once and, and look like you know what you're doing when you don't know what you're doing. You're 10 times in the, the awkwardness and the embarrassment of the situation. That's one. Okay, so num- number two is that I then looked at what, what were the businesses that were succeeding because I, I wanted to know what, what were the music schools because I, mine was failing. 
Um, and when I looked all around me, I saw the same problem. I saw all these music schools that were failing. You know, being based in Sydney, I could see see the, my competition. I could also see music schools in other areas. And I, I really wanted to find it's the whole modeling thing. Find someone who's doing it successfully and model them. And so, okay, I was struggling to find anyone who was actually doing very well at it. And so I thought, okay, well, let me zoom out and, and see across the, across the world who let me think about it. And so I thought about where's the most successful guitar school in the world? Let, let me think hard about it. And so at that point, it was the Institute in, uh, it was actually originally called GIT, Guitar Institute in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. Um, it's now become the Music Institute there, um, MIT. So, so okay, what was their beginnings? Let, let me have a look. Let me go back and have a look at it. So as best I could, I looked at sort of, and it started as just like a private music school. We're teaching one-on-one. That's where it began. Now, I went there. I, I spent three days there. I went in and talked to the guys there. I told them who I was, and, and they said, yeah, you're welcome. Just hang out and have a look around and sit in some classes and whatever. It's all group teaching. There are a few uh, one-on-one situations that, you know, you get a bit of time. I think if you pay, and it's expensive, like you're paying tens of thousands of dollars a year to, to go there, and then you're mostly being taught in groups. It's pretty much, you know, 90% of the learning is group. Okay. So, so the other one was was Berkeley in uh, the US. So I went to Boston and, and same thing there. I said who I was and they said, yeah, sure, hang out, check it out. And so, again, same thing, it's group teaching. What made the difference, and same in Sydney, um, we've got the you know, Institute of Music in Sydney and that started from uh, a private, it was called Sydney Guitar School um, and started from private teaching private guitar lessons. And now it's it's the most profitable business in in Sydney, uh, in Australia, probably for learning music, right? So this was the pattern that I saw that they went from private to teaching in groups. Those who stuck with doing private lessons with lots of private students never, never did very well. Most of them went out of business after a while. So obviously, and so, so the analogy that I like to use is that if you do a concert every night for one person at a time, how are you ever going to make any money? Unless it's for, for some millionaire or billionaire who's going to pay you a lot of money, it's not going to happen. You've got to play to a a larger audience you know if you go you go to an acdc concert or whatever concert guess what you're going to be standing in a crowd with fifty thousand other people that's just how it is that's how they make their money yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to get a one-on-one showing so so that that's they're the two things the fear of of group teaching which many guitar teachers have and they justify their fear by saying things like uh, you know, it's not the way to teach and, you know, you want to teach students properly. If you're serious about teaching, you'll teach one-on-one. If you really care about your students, all these justifications they use um, is one. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times to teach private. There, there are. There are There are definitely times that students should have a one-on-one with a teacher. Uh, absolutely. But if you're doing a business and you want to make some money, it's not going to work for you. It's great for the student, but it's not going to work for you. You're in, Unless you can somehow be someone like Joe Satriani and charge, you know, $5,000 for an hour, you're going to struggle to, to make the money. And even Joe doesn't really want to do that much. He would rather be playing on stage. And they, even they've been doing these group things in, in the US. I don't know if you've heard of those, but they basically uh, teach you, you go to, it's like a camp. Um, yeah, they're like camp. rock and roll fantasy camp or something like that with Vi and such. And I know John Petrucci did one recently as well. Yeah. One of the celebrity yeah. guitar players are getting in on it. Exactly. It's a, it's a celebrity type situation and, and, and they're teaching guys who are generally serious about learning guitar. Like they're usually better players. They're not these particular ones that I saw, but there's the idea is that they're still teaching groups. They're, they're not doing private lessons. And so whenever you look at, whenever I looked at these models, that's what I saw. And it was, it's really the same in any business is that if you're doing one-on-one consulting, you're selling yourself by the hour and there's only so much people will pay. And there's only so many hours that you have available. So there's there's a ceiling. There's, there's there's a definite ceiling. But when you start to play to larger audiences, expand your audience, then it's it's funny because my uh, my daughter she likes K-pop, and so the during the COVID period, BTS. I don't know if you know who they are, but they're kind of big popular K-pop group. So it was like, well, what are they going to do? Concerts? No, they can't tour. They can So they do this this live concert. Now, not only my daughter likes them, but my wife likes them too. Right? And and so said, oh, they're doing this live concert on online, and um, we want to buy tickets for it. And I'm like, and I'm like, what? 
you want to buy tickets for a live online concert? And then, yeah, yeah, we want to buy tickets for, for a concert. Okay, why don't you just watch it on YouTube or something? You know, a week later, I'm sure it'll be there. Someone will upload it. Oh, no, no, we want to see it live. It's, 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 a, it's a special event and, and, you know, we get exclusive access and blah, blah, blah. All right, go ahead if that's what you want to do. Um, and they ended up having like over a million people. So they sold tickets to over a million people. So they expanded their audience from doing a concert where they probably had a maximum of 100,000 people. Now they've, they've done a million people online. Like, and that's, that's the power of, you know, leveraging uh, your, your, your time. So that they only had to do the same amount of time. Uh, as far as performance is concerned, and uh, in fact, it was probably a lower cost uh, performance because they didn't have to facilitate a large crowd, you know, with all the trimmings. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No gear trucks. No. <laughs> no people on the hot dog stands. No electricity out. out all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just the car parking alone. You know, just not having to worry about any of those those things, and just yeah. just leveraging. And it to me, it's not the same experience, but. To them, they enjoyed it, and the ticket prices weren't as expensive. Obviously, if you go to the concert, but still, they're about half the price. So they're still paying about half the price of you know going to an actual concert, and uh, and let's say getting half the experience. But it doesn't matter to them because they're fans. They love it. They don't care. They 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 they. they that's what they want, and you know. It, that leverage is the same leverage that made the the music industry so so such a big, wealthy, powerful industry. If you couldn't print records, you know, if you, if everyone didn't buy the records, then there's no money in it for the for the musicians. It was that they could replicate their music. That's where the music music industry came from. Is that leveraging and replicating of of something, expanding it out. And so, if you're not doing that, if you're selling yourself by the hour. If you're continuing to go around and play your songs live and never recording them and never selling records and never doing crowd, you know, groups of people, you're limited to what people will pay. And there's only a certain number of people who will pay, even if you charge $10,000 for a private showing, just you and them. How many people can pay $10,000 to sit and listen to you play music? Not many. Uh, that's where your 80-20 principle comes in. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Metallica makes, I think, eighty percent of their money from two percent of their fan base, or something like that. When and you think of all the people that say they like Metallica but would never pay for a CD or a concert ticket or anything like that, it just yeah. as you get further down that funnel, that twenty percent just buys more and more, and then two percent, and then yeah, it just keeps on going. It's it's amazing. It's and it's so un how can I say unrealized by so many people. So many people are just focused. Think they they just they don't play the 80-20, which is the 80-20 is just doesn't mean that much in the sense of that everything's 80-20. Some things are 98-2, just like you said then, right? And 98% of the profit comes from 2%, or sometimes it can not even be a, equal 100. It can be that, you know, 80% of the profits come from just 1% of, you know, the, the people in that thing. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Oh, I could talk about this stuff all day, these numbers and statistics and things <laughs> like that. And I... I even had a conversation with someone um, who was hitting me up for some business consulting and she's like, I have 300 students, but I'm only making this much money. How are you doing these insane numbers, Michael? And I was just like, well, what are you charging? And I just did some calculations. So you're earning roughly this much. And I said, if you've got 300 students, I guarantee you at least 100 of them are going to pay you double what they currently are. And there's probably going to be at least 10 of them who are going to be paying you a thousand dollars all you have to do is have the right program for them or have the right offer for them it's one of these things where if you're too busy worried about how much a student's going to pay or what the guy down the road's charging and you know keeping competitive with his rates then you're always going to be stuck playing the same game as everyone else whereas if you you know go out and do your own thing uh provide an experience about what you think is cool because if you think it's cool there's going to be other people just like you and your ideal audience who also think that's cool and they're the guys who are going to pay you more for what you provide because it's unique, it's different. It probably gets better results than, you know, the same old, same old everyone else is doing. And uh, again, the, you know, the numbers are amazing when you actually start playing with them. And uh, that 80-20 principle, it's almost like there's the 80-20 and then of that 20%, then there's another 80-20 within that. And that's how you get to the two out, uh, you know, the 98-2 and things like that. And of that, it's the same thing, you know, the 4%, uh, what, what do they say? Like the top 1% of the world has all the wealth. You know, it's just doesn't matter what you look at <laughs> this is the yep. universal principle that keeps popping up it's a yeah it's a the distribution and, and, and it's in everything you, you can look at your, your guitar practice 
80% of your results come from 20% of your practice. So, you know, if you want to get better on guitar faster, then stop doing the stuff that's really giving you a little return. Yeah, stop playing the same old, you know, same old blues leaks over and over again for 80% of your time and start getting focused on what you do <laughs> and what you want yeah, to achieve. Yeah. It makes a big difference. Yeah. So you went all the way over to America and you checked out a few of these higher up schools. So that just speaks volumes in itself of, you know, the kind of person you are and how serious and committed to, you know, your own success you are when you take a big, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a risk, but obviously a big step and a big journey to go out and find other people who are doing it, what you want to do. And then, as you said before, model uh, what they're doing, you know, success leaves clues. I think it's, that's one of Tony Robbins's favorite quotes in that one there um, and going yep. and looking where the clues are. So, yeah. So you went to all these places. Then what did you do with the information that you found? Well, there was obviously a lot, a lot of epiphanies that came as I did that because the, the whole group thing didn't hit me at first. It, it, actually, when I was there, when I went to the US, I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I was just curious. It was like, why are these guys doing so well? I wasn't even group teaching at that point, but it, it all sort of clicked later. So it was it was really because I had spent a year in the US. And so so I, I wanted to really make the most of it. Um, and it wasn't just the US, it was Japan as well, uh, which is why I have a fascination. I'm here in Japan now. And, and so my fascination for Japan is it, it actually started from the, the companies like Toyota. Toyota, they call it the Toyota Principle or, or the lean, lean production, it's called. And it's again 80 20. That, if you want to see an amazing example of 80 20, just look at Toyota. Um, they've become this, the, the number one car maker in the world. There are more Toyota cars than any other company in the world. So if you look at them, what is it they did? And so they, they had this, con- they have, like, as again, if we, we're quoting from Robbins a bit today, but he, he actually gets a lot of this stuff from these types of companies. And so they have a, you know, in Japan or in, in not in, not Japan necessarily generally, but in Toyota and these leading companies in Japan, they have a philosophy of constant improvement. They're always looking how they can make, make something better, but more what they're looking for is how can we make it more efficient? So it's not just making a, a better product, but making it a more efficient operation. How can we produce it to keep costs down, to be competitive, et cetera? And so they they're constantly making these small improvements and that got to the point where because because anyone who who knows the history of cars cars you know in, in Australia we have the NRMA which is for for anyone who's international they're basically National Road Motor Association and so they come and rescue you when your car breaks down now today cars rarely break down it's a, it's a rare event that your car doesn't doesn't start or it just suddenly stops um but it still happens occasionally. But with but it used to happen all the time. People would 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 go out and, and they would have to you'd have to have this NRMA service because you never knew where you're going to break down at any point. So but now cars are so reliable that the, the car companies aren't competing for reliability anymore. That it's this you to just to get into the game, your car has to be reliable, whether it be your guitar playing, whether it be your teaching, whether it be your you know, business. That constant improvement is really what it's about. That's the game that you play when you become an entrepreneur. So part of my journey to America and to Japan was to sort of learn. These guys are the two richest countries in the world at that point. China obviously come into the game now, but but originally it was America and Japan. So what are these guys doing that the rest of the world is not doing? What can I learn? Not just about teaching guitar, but business generally. Uh, And it's fascinating because... They're actually quite different, Japan and America. America has a, a very a focus on the product. So, and, and Japan is kind of like the opposite. So, in America, it's like we make the product and then we sell it to you. We convince you to buy whatever it is that we make. Whereas in uh, uh, Japan, it's like we watch the customer, we learn what the customer wants, and then we design the product to suit the customer. So, that's, that's kind of two things. And, and the irony is, is that they, they go back and forth. They learn from each other. And, and we can say it's America, but really it's West, Western thinking versus, the, you know, Eastern thinking. In Japan, they had this idea of, of going, like for Toyota, for instance, when Toyota first entered the market in America, they failed. They went in there. They, they spent four years trying to sell their, their Toyota first Toyota car, and they only had, only had one. And it failed miserably and they actually pulled out completely. They, they left American market and 
went back and thought about it, how can we do this properly? And then they fixed all their problems and, and went back. But one of the things they did to fix the problem was exactly what I'm talking about here is they went to America and observed Americans. What are they doing? How, how can we make a car that, that's going to work for them? And what they noticed is they went to Disneyland, for example, in the car park and they used to analyze and watch people bring their cars in. They had these big cars, these these women who were like taking their kids, you know, during the week to Disneyland and they had trouble parking the car. Because back then, women didn't actually drive cars that much. So the women just take out the car, you know, once once a week or something. It was mostly the men driving the cars. And they see these women having difficulty maneuvering these big cars, which were big back in those days. Uh, and so they thought, well, what if we make a smaller car, an easier car, something that, and, and make a car where they can easily get the pram out and they can get their kids in easily and all this sort of thing. So they they came up with all these kind of innovations that that appealed to more the female driver, I think. And that's why when you look at the Japanese cars, they're smaller. They're, they're, they're much more, you know, for lack of a better term, they're feminine, right? The, the masculine cars were the big cars. The men drove big cars, but the women wanted just small cars. And and so, but then people realised there's a lot of advantages to a small car. Um, it's easier to park, and so and you know, easier to get around, and and they use less fuel and, and etc. So my point is, is that that yeah, by stepping out of your your actual comfort zone or stepping out of just your area and what you do. And I don't mean just stepping out by going to another country. I mean, stepping out of guitar teaching and looking at what other industries are doing. What do other people do in other industries? Because what we tended to do was we look inward. We're all looking at other guitar teachers and just sort of, oh, well, I'm going to do what other, and what do other guitar teachers do? They teach privately. And that's where they were all looking inward and had this problem. Very, very important lessons. I think some of the best breakthroughs I had in my business was, yeah, literally, looking at martial arts schools and going, what are they doing really well? Or looking at dance schools going, what are they doing really well? Because it's all different forms of education. Uh, and fortunately, you know, my father's been pretty uh, involved in the AFL in several coaching capacities. So I get to go down and watch like, you know, Richmond Tigers training and see what they're doing at a pro athlete level and then take that sort of mindset training and, um, you know, high performance sports coaching and then apply that to guitar lessons. So, yeah, always looking outside of the industry is a very, very critical tip. But um, I didn't know any of those stories about, you know, Toyota and how they broke into the market. That was amazing stuff. Yeah, the, the incredible story. I mean, one, one thing that I'll add too is that that most of that thinking came from an American. It didn't actually come from a Japanese person. Um, Japanese are very good, and you realize that when you spend time in Japan, is Japanese are very good at sort of following rules. Um, they're much more rule-orientated uh, culture. They like to all follow whatever it is that the custom is. They hate stepping out and standing out. So, so things that they couldn't do in America, they could actually achieve in Japan. And this particular guy, his name was Deming, and he he was, I think he was appointed by MacArthur, who was the general at the time who signed the, the, the peace treaty with, with Japan. He, uh, he basically wanted Japan to sort of, you know, get back on their economical feet. And so he, he, he recommended this guy Deming. But Deming was actually not popular in America. He was actually, most of his ideas were kind of considered, you know, silly and not not applicable um and so they sort of ignored him for the most part but in japan he became a hero and so and his idea was this very customer centric focus of you know what do the customers want what are the customers needs and and also the 80 20 he was he was about constant improvement so those ideas actually came from america but japan grabbed them with complete gusto whereas you know the west were like no, we know we know what's best for our customers. That's kind of the Western thing. We know what's best for our customers. Whereas in the Asia, it's like no, the customers know what's best for them. So we need to provide. So and and actual fact, both are not absolutely correct. You, you know, one way or the other, it's not absolutely correct. You, you can't if you go to one extreme or the other, you're probably going to fail in business. And that's what people often do. You've got to do both. You've got to you've got to both decide what's best for the customer, but also observe the customers and see what works and what doesn't work. So it's a kind of a, almost like a contradiction, but most things that are, that are successful in life tend to be contradictions. Yeah. And it can even go to the point where it's, it is a bit of a pendulum. Sometimes it just goes through a cycle where you can 
do one thing until the point where it you know goes past that tipping point. Then you got to come back in the other direction and fix it up. But yeah, if you can get the best of both worlds, again, uh, one of my favorite things is not to go, do I do this or this? It's how do I do this and this? And ask, you know, just change the the question that you're asking yourself so you can get, you know, what is best for the customer from their perspective and get them to tell you all the things that they want or need included. And again, for anyone listening this, like um, whenever you have a student quit, you should be asking them, hey, like, what could we have done to improve or rectify the situation or, or make it better? And then, you know, they'll tell you exactly, or hopefully they'll tell you exactly what it was, but it's also good not to wait until they quit. Always ask your, you know, your existing students, hey, how can we make this better? How can we make it more fun? What, what don't you like? What, what do you really like? Double down on the stuff you really like while fixing the stuff you don't like. And I think that's another one of those Japanese things. It's not just solving problems. It's identifying, again, 80-20 principle. What are the 20% things you do really well? And then putting more time and effort into you know, doubling or tripling those kind of things and you know, sticking to your guns and, and doing what you're good at. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the whole idea in, in my thing is, yeah, look at what's working and look at what's not working um, and, and and constantly be working on both. Again, it's like you say, the pendulum. Which thing is the thing that's most important right now that you need to work on? So is it finding more students? Is it your marketing? Is it your sales, like converting them? Is it keeping them? And and I, I like to keep things very simple. And to me, they're really that they're really the three things that matter is that are you generating, you know, more leads? Are you converting those leads? And are you keeping those those leads? And and so yeah, if you can if you can focus on those three things. And often what happens is that we can get stuck on one of those two. So in other words, I see these guys all the time in in in, in business, not just in guitar teaching, but where they're so focused on marketing all the time. And so then I say to them, how many, how many, you know, leads have you generated in the in the last, say, three months or six months? Um, and they, you know, they might say, let's say hundred, right? And I say, okay, how many converted? Oh, 10. All right. So you've got a 10% conversion rate. Um, and how many of them are staying with you? Well, one or two. Okay. So Maybe you should work more on converting more and then keeping them longer because you realize that if you can keep keep them, that the, the long tail is often much more valuable. Like the, like if and, and knowing the value of your you know lifetime value of any particular client, it, it helps you to refocus so into keeping them because if you're if the average value of your client, as say as a guitar teacher, when I first did this exercise, I, I found the average value was only about four hundred dollars. But I, I thought, well, what if I could double that to eight hundred dollars? Well, suddenly I don't need to do. I can do half the marketing because now I've doubled, or I can do the same marketing and double double. It's and it's not just doubling your profits because you've got those baseline expenses. So if you're let's just say the average student's worth four hundred dollars, and a hundred dollars covers your baseline expenses. Then you're making a three hundred dollar profit. But if you double that profit up to seven hundred, oh sorry, so to eight hundred, now you're making seven hundred. So, but the baseline profit hasn't changed; it's still a hundred. Um, so the percentage of profit even increases. So just looking at that, one student is actually now worth more than two students. That helps into it's, and I think you and I could talk about this all day long because it's it's really just about crunching numbers and really focusing on where the where the money is. So. 100%. I think we'll have to have a, a separate podcast episode, which is just entirely business <laughs> and yeah, crunching yeah, all these exactly. numbers and things like that. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate that. Certainly. Well, let's get back on track with your story in terms of um, you've been to America, you've obviously, hopefully or at some point you've been to America, you've been to Japan, you're back to Australia. And then what did you do with all the information that you learned? Okay. So, so there was a point where I, you know, realized that the group was where the money was, like I said, the 80, 20. And so when I went away and spent two years sort of breaking and then starting G4, then I just exclusively did grid teaching myself. I wanted to sort of get to that point, which I reached my goal, like I said, just to summarize all that. And then it was like, okay, do I want to continue teaching um, or do I want to, again, pivot this business somehow? And so what I did is I expanded it. I brought in other teachers. I ended up opening five schools altogether. Uh, in Sydney, and it all happened in two years because this, like I said, once you know your plan, it happens very quickly. And so, so I'd expanded, and I had a bunch of teachers who were doing doing all the teaching. I, I stopped teaching altogether after about a year or so uh, of that. And but then what happened was that 
the the whole online thing started happening. I, I was going to, as I said before, learning, reading, constantly reading, but I was also going to marketing seminars. I was learning from other people. You know, I attended Robbins as well. I attended Jay Abraham, um, lots of these guys who were kind of the, the top guys going around at the time for, for marketing and business. And so as I was learning about that, it wasn't just what they were teaching me. It was actually realizing these guys are part of a kind of a, an online wave of, of they're building up through social media, they're building building reputations and and leveraging the internet. And that's what I saw was going on, that they're, they're leveraging the internet. So I thought about what do I really want to do now at this point? You know, I love teaching still, but I don't, I've kind of, done the guitar teaching. I've done it for long enough because once I'd sort of done that year of G4 and done the group teaching, I'd really, because I, I I went full on again. I focused on the group teaching. How can I be the absolute best group teacher uh, possible? Um, and and so I did that. And, uh, you know, that's why it was part of what I was going to those seminars. I was looking at people like Robbins and, and Abrahams and, and looking at how they were coaching large groups of people. And that's, I sort of brought that into my own uh, teaching. And so I thought, okay, well, well, I'm actually teaching teachers now. I'm teaching them how to do the G4 method and how to teach the, the students in groups and, and all that. So the next step is, well, what if I could teach this to people who are actually paying me rather than me paying them? Right? Because as a, as a teacher, as an employee, I'm paying you to do this. And so what they created, a lot of the time the teachers, they weren't really that interested in it. They weren't that enthusiastic. So I thought, if people are paying me, they're keen. <laughs> There's a, there's a very different mindset to someone who's paying you than and compared to an employee. Uh, and so I, I thought, okay, well, let's give it a shot. Um, and I was just, again, blown away by how responsive the teachers were because once they sort of looked at G4 and, and sort of that, they, I, I found there were two reactions, not interested or I love it. There was no like middle ground. It was like, oh, it seems okay or it, was, it just wasn't. I mean, there were probably a few like that, but mostly it was polarizing them. They, they were like not interested or, you know, I remember getting some comments where people would say, why would I pay you to, I know how to teach. I've got my own system. I don't need your system. I say, well, that's fine. Go and teach your system. But then I'd have other guys who come and go, man, I love it. You've just taken away all this work that I would have had to do for myself. Uh, yeah. Sign me up. And, and so, so what I've ended up with, with these clients that have been with me for like 10 years now, um, and most of my clients have been with me long-term I haven't actually been marketing or doing anything for for this for a number of years because I don't need to. I've got enough. I'm 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 just where I need to be, so I don't need to keep, keep growing it. So so that's it. That's the evolution of G4. Fantastic and an absolutely awesome story. And how many? Uh, I guess like how many people did it have at its peak or, or are currently involved in the program? Okay, so the the peak of it was probably around fifty teachers that I had. Um, there were there were guys who were on other programs as well. So I didn't have when I say fifty, they were the actual G four guitar franchisees. But I had also what we'll say was subscribers, people who just wanted to learn the business aspects, have access to the members area, but they weren't interested in teaching G four. I basically had two types of clients: ones who wanted to learn how to to, to make money as a guitar teacher, but they didn't want to teach G four. They they wanted to use their own system, do it their own way, have their own brand, all the rest of it. And then there were the other ones who were wanted to be G4 guitar teachers. And so, like I said, 50 was probably the peak of it. And now it's a bit under 40. And interestingly enough, a couple of them uh, have retired. Um, they, they did, they've, they've done a good amount of teaching. They made a good amount of money. And now they're, they're basically retired completely as guitar teachers because they came in probably a little bit later in their career. You know, they come in at sort of age 40 or 45. And so they've, they've done sort of 10 years of G4 and then they've retired. So and most of them have been successful. There, there are a couple who it didn't work out for for various reasons. But you, usually, and, and that's that's again a whole different talk as to to you know when you when people do programs. The same with your guitar teaching. Not every student you you sign up is going to be successful with your program. So some some of them it's just not going to work for for whatever reason. Doesn't matter how good your program is, it just doesn't work for them. It's not. It doesn't suit their personality or whatever. Yeah, most definitely, and. How did you sort of go about building up your, you know, network of teachers? Um, I guess this is going back, as you said, 10, 15 years ago. Initially, what I did was I started doing YouTube videos so people would pick up on the videos. But the, the, the real 
the way I did it was through Facebook marketing. So I I was working with, I was doing marketing seminars and I was learning all about Facebook marketing. And so initially I did Google ads and that worked okay in the beginning, but it died off pretty quickly uh, in comparison. Well, sorry, my interest in Google ads died off pretty quickly, uh, AdWords as, as, it was, as it was called, because Facebook was just giving me much better return. The Facebook actually doesn't work as well as it used to as well. And the reason is, is that these platforms, once everyone starts coming in on them, then you've got a lot of competition for not 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 against necessarily other guitar teachers or people doing what, even what you're doing, but just the ads become more expensive for the, the amount of attention that you're getting uh, response. So when Facebook ads first started, same with Google AdWords, but, you know, I was paying like one cent a click for, for, for Google when it started. Um, you know, with Facebook, I was picking up a client for, for for $10, you know, I pay $10 and I get it. The client was, was worth thousands of dollars. And it was just like, these are gold mines. And part of my business evolution is that's what I've been doing. So, you know, I, I've also invested into other areas uh, of technology uh, other than guitar teaching, because that's what, if you want to keep moving forward, you've got to, you've got to look where things are moving. Now, I'm very much into that kind of thing. I do a lot with, you know, cryptocurrencies and a lot with, um, you know, online technologies and, and, and seeing where things are going. You've got the metaverse coming in now. And so it's constantly looking ahead. And this is where the reading comes in. It's not getting stuck into your little world and not seeing because you're, whatever you're doing will become obsolete at some point. Right? At some point, you, you, your way of marketing or your way of teaching is going to become obsolete. If you're still teaching and operating a music school like it's 1980, Guess what? <laughs> You're probably broke. <laughs> the writing's on the wall. Yeah, that's that's a really really good quote, um, which I'm sure will we'll post all over social media. Uh, that's a great one. At some point, whatever you're doing will become obsolete. So, um, Dave, I do know you, you've got to take off soon. So, just a couple last questions. You've mentioned you're a big reader. So, what's three books um, in particular guitar teachers should definitely check out and put on their reading list? Wow, narrow it down to three. Probably. Uh, I think the idea is to, is is if we think of three categories, if we sort of take a category, just just hang on a sec, because I've literally got over a thousand books on here that I've read. Oh well. Wow. Um, so I just want to, and and what tends to stick are the most recent ones. So let me just give you a couple of recent ones because I've got a whole list on my website with, for the teachers, which I can give you a link after. Oh, um, definitely. Can go to that see a list no. of. Yeah, it's about 100 books on that list that they can have a look at. But, for instance, one of the great books that I've just, like, th- these are the kind of things, right? So there's, there's a book called Cues, C-U-E-S, just as an example, by Vanessa Van Edwards. And so it's all about how to connect with people, how to win Win Friends and Influence People, which is a famous book, right? So so Win Friends and Influence People is probably the original book in this category. And and you need to learn how to influence people. You need to learn how to to win the favor of people and to build trust. Because if you're going to teach a program, so, so, so the idea when I teach guitar or teach anything is that first I need you to trust me. Because if you don't trust me, then you're not going to listen and you're not going to follow my advice. So part of Part of that, when friends influence people, and this particular book, cues, she's, she's an expert in this area, then you learn how to build that trust and win favor with people so then they'll follow your program. Now, another amazing book that I read recently is called The Confident Mind. And I love this book. And this guy, and you know, Americans will probably relate to it quite well because he's in America. Um, so his name's Nathaniel uh, Zinser. And it's all about how building your you're using affirmations and and it's all science by the way it's not it's not hairy fairy stuff um, but it's about using affirmations to get results. So you you say things to yourself in the present like I'm a great guitar player. Yeah, I'm I'm an amazing guitar player. I'm 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 one of the best guitar players that's ever lived. Now it doesn't matter if these things are true now or not. What it does is it programs you to to actually believe that and when you believe something you act in accordance to it and so what does a great guitar player do well they practice a lot okay what do they practice they practice these kind of things they practice efficiently etc so it's the same no matter what i'm a great teacher i'm a fantastic teacher i'm a great group teacher 
I'm one of the best group teachers that's ever lived. So you start you start using these kind of affirmations, and he's 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 used this with with many very uh, famous sports people in in America, and they've basically gone from being you know average to being one of the best because they use this kind of. So it's a great book to read. So that's in the category of of success and and you know mindset and so forth. And I think mindset is a huge part of anything, whether it be you because see the thing is if you're not if you don't believe you're a great teacher, you're probably not going to be a great teacher. <laughs> and 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 people aren't going to pay you as a great teacher because you don't believe you're a great teacher. And as if you're not a great teacher, you probably don't have great students as well. How can you be a great it doesn't make sense. How can you how can you be uh, a, an average teacher and pr- produce great students? You can't. You've got to be a great teacher to produce great students. It just it's just a logical uh, thing. So that's why I think mindset is a huge one. Probably uh, another one here. I've just got so many, but but uh, let, let, let me give you two more. One is called fantastic, uh, uh, fanatical prospecting, and that's by uh, Jeb Blout. And Jeb is in, in his particular book. He's written a couple of books, but he's all about the prospecting is getting new students, like getting leads, getting people to sign up, etc. So, you, and if you read his book, you'll realize, wow, there are so many students out there. Like there's just I could have a thousand students if I wanted to. There's just there's so much out there, and so he really gets you into that that headspace, that mind space of realizing that we live in a world of abundance, not scarcity. So you've got to get out of that scarcity mindset. And so these are the kind of books that get you out of that mindset. Now the one other book that I'll give, which is a kind of a different angle, um, it's called Not Nice, and this is one of the biggest things that I've seen that 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 I go through with with teachers. Stop being so nice. Stop being so so. Stop trying to make all your students your friends. Okay. They're not there to be your friend. They're there to learn guitar. So if they're not practicing, tell them, say, dude, you're not doing the work. Don't be afraid to lose students because you tell them the truth. Tell them the hard truth. If you want to be good on guitar, you've got to practice. You can't, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm not here to tell you that you're a champion. Hey, man, you're doing so well. Like you mix it up. Don't make it all not nice. But don't just be nice all the time. Be, be tell them the hard truth. If 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 you know if I'm consulting you in business, do you want me to say, yeah, you're doing great, man. You're, you're not making any money, but hey, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. You don't want that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear, dude, you're not you're not you're not going to make any money doing this. What you're doing is completely useless. So let's let's be honest, right? That's so that's a really interesting point you make there. And I'm going to buy that one as soon as we jump off the podcast because I think a lot of teachers feel like, you know, they're at the mercy of um, their students' feelings and they're always treading on eggshells and putting up with, you know, less than great students because they're worried about offending them so they you know, quit lessons. And unfortunately, I think the whole world's suffering from a lack of resiliency at, at the moment and um, everything's sort of been watered down and pampered and, and everyone's been coddled. Um, so... Yeah, we don't Definitely want to offend anyone. that one. That's it. We don't want yeah. to offend anyone. But um, yeah, what do we sacrifice by not offending anyone? And it's obviously our own, you know, mental health and frustrations and things like that as well. So, yeah, that sounds like a very, very interesting read. So, David, it's been absolutely fantastic having you. Before I ask my final question, where can everyone find more about you? Uh, find out more about G Four, any of the other things and resources that you have available. Um, just type in G Four Guitar. That's all. Just on Google, you'll find me. Just put the letter G, the numeral four, and then the word guitar, and you can search my name, David Hart, G Four Guitar. You'll you'll find me, and you'll you'll come, you'll get to my websites, or you'll find my email address or contact. So it's just the easiest way. Fantastic. So hit up David at G Four, and we'll put all those links, you know, wherever you're listening to the podcast episode as well. So that'll be nice, easy access for you, David. If you could impart one final piece of wisdom for guitar teachers listening to this podcast, what would that be? Uh, to seek out help, don't don't do it on your own. Guitar teachers are like spiders; they tend to hide in corners and you know not seek help. My my life, my career changed. I spent the first ten years trying to thinking that I had all the answers and did it all myself. It was only when I stepped up, stepped out, and started seeking out coaches and and yeah, that's when everything changed for me. I can definitely second that advice. It was in my own journey. You would say. 10 years of meandering or, you know, a good portion of meandering and just going through the motions, not knowing any different. There was nothing wrong with that. But as soon as you get organized and have someone who can lay out a path for you to follow and just walk you down that path, like the momentum comes and it 
comes quicker than you ever thought possible. So amazing yeah. stuff. So okay. David, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll definitely try and get you back because I feel like we, we just got to the tip of the iceberg today and there's such a wealth of knowledge in terms of you know, your approach to teaching in so many things we didn't get to cover today. So thank you. We'll definitely tee up another one for a couple of months down the track and we'll look forward to having you on next time. Thanks, David. Thanks, Michael. Good talking to you. If you enjoy this show and want to hear more of our work, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. For links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a free ebook on how to find more guitar students, visit us at www.topmusic.co slash guitar or check out the show notes. And lastly, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.